Wives be praying and husbands be receiving the word, all right? So let's start off by reading that passage, then we'll pray and then we'll jump into it. Here it comes. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25. Let's just read the whole thing to husbands one last time. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. May we receive it as with hearts that are good soil. May it go in deeply and bear fruit. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for giving us this passage. We pray that the Spirit of God would move powerfully in our hearts so that we would receive your word that we would honor you as you speak to us in your word, that it would direct our paths, that we would become doers and not just hearers of the word. We pray for blessing and joy in the marriages of Cornerstone Church. We pray that you would especially speak to and work in and deal with the husbands of this church during this message. May our lives and may our families be conformed to all that you have for us in Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's add another reading now. 1 Peter 3, 7, another very important passage on husbands. Here it is. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So what we've read in Ephesians and now in 1 Peter chapter 3, this is, the, this is the will of God for husbands. God doesn't leave us to make up. What should I be? What should I do as a husband? No, he tells us, here's what I want husbands doing. Husbands of Cornerstone Church, these are several of the Bible's premier passages that speak to you as a husband. So it's like, if ever the Spirit of God is going to work in your marriage, well, hopefully that's happening now. That should be happening now because this is prime time or in God's Word. The focus here is on what kind of husband Jesus Christ wants his blood-bought, redeemed men to be. And so I pray that your minds are ready. I pray that your hearts are receptive. I pray that you're eager to receive and do God's Word. 
This is God's word that we're looking at. What have we seen so far? Just to summarize it, because it was a lot really, but husband, you are identified in this text as the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his bride. What does it mean to be head? It means that you are the one given authority, but that with that always comes responsibility. You have the authority, you have the responsibility to lead the family. Well, what am I leading the family in? Several things. You're leading the family to be a healthy family. That's on you. If the family is not well, if something's lacking, if things are ill, it's on you to seek to lead the family. And I know every problem can't be fixed. Every husband can't make everything good, just as every wife can't make every problem with a man good. But you're to seek to lead redemptively through the issues in your family so your family becomes healthy. But that's not an end in itself. I've impressed this upon you a number of times, and I want to do it again. That's not like the end. Okay, my family's healthy, good, I'm done. I don't have to lead in any other way. No, you're leading your family to health so that your family can be strong on the mission which God has given your family. Well, what's that? Well, we go back to Genesis for that. Let me remind you, God made the man and the woman and he brought them together and he made them one. And he said, now I have a mission for you. The mission is to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to exercise dominion over it. And that is, that's still the mission. That's the mission we're on. That's what families are for. That's what they're supposed to be accomplishing. You're being fruitful, you're multiplying, you're filling the earth, and you're exercising dominion over your part of the turf, over your job, over your business, over your land, over your kids, over everything that comes under your purview. That's the mission that you're on. Layer over that, which is called the, the cultural mandate from Genesis. Layer over that, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, and you're also on that mission as a family. You want to make disciples so that they can be baptized at your church and taught to, to do everything Jesus commands. So what are we on the planet for? Those are the missions God has given us, and you as head are to lead your family beneficently, benevolently, wisely, lovingly, four times in the text, love your wife, love your wife, love your wife, love your wife. That's the main command given to husbands so that you can be... Um, so that you can be strong in the mission and the great commission that God has given to you. So husband is head, leading the family to health and leading the family on the mission. Now we're looking at some of the commands that Jesus Christ gives husbands through the pen of the apostle Paul. So let me just read verse 25 again. Here it comes up on the screen for you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You remember it goes on and gave himself for her. Love your wives. That's the most basic command. So in our last time, it was weeks ago now, we were looking at characteristics of that love. We saw that it is an unconditional love. It's not love her as long as she's wonderful and perfect. It's an unconditional love. We also saw that it's an intense love. It's not just lukewarm love. It's not so-so love. Well, I kind of love her. No, you're supposed to really love that woman. And now today we're going to look at some more characteristics of this love. And here's the first one for today. This love, if you love your wife as Christ loved the church, then you love your wife with an exclusive love. You, you love her exclusively in a way that excludes all other women, including your mama. There are some men who need to hear that. There really are. I'm not looking at you, Perry, because you're one I'm just happen to be looking at you. All right. There are men who need to hear that. There, there's no other woman on the planet in the K 
category that your wife is in. Don't make a category error and think some other woman can be in that category. There's no one else. There's four billion women on the planet, and there's your wife. She is in a very special place. You love her exclusively. She ought to feel that. She ought to feel like there's, there's women out there, and then there's me. And he loves me like nobody else, not even his mama. No other woman on the planet is anywhere near my category. I'm loved with an exclusive love because Jesus Christ loves his church with an exclusive love. Let's see that. Let's see where we, where we get that. Um, let's go to... Uh, I think I have a, a mistake in my thing here. So what we want to see is Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So here's the point. Does Christ love all people? Yes, he loves all people with a general love. Does he love his church in, with a special love? Yes, he does. He loved the church and gave himself for her. So Christ exclusively loves his redeemed people in a way that excludes other. He loves them with a general love, but he loves his people with a special love, a redemptive love, and that's the model for husbands to love their wives. It's an exclusive love. Now let me hurry on. It's also a perpetual love. When you love like Jesus Christ, when you love your wife like, like Christ loves the church, you love her with a perpetual love. Let me show you some examples of Christ's love for his church and how perpetual it is, how enduring it is, how everlasting it is. And this is a model for you loving your wife as Christ loves the church. All right, so Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And your wife ought to be able to say, what would possibly separate me from the love of my husband? Because he's loving you like Christ loves the church. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, like if they cut off my head, will that separate me from the love of Christ? It'll separate you from your head, but it won't separate you from the love of Christ. Or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. No, none of those things will separate you from the love of Christ. When you're in Christ, You've repented and believed on him. He's redeemed you. He's regenerated you. He's your sovereign, your king, your Lord, your savior, your master. Nothing will ever separate you from Christ's love. Some people believe you can lose your salvation. You cannot. Some people believe you can lose your salvation. They have, they have a daisy. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. This text says he loves you. Drop down a few verses, verse 37, Romans 8, 37. No, in all these things, what things? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That means you conquer and keep believing. That means you conquer and you're held by the grace of God. That means you conquer and you keep following Christ. 
For I am sure, he says, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and hallelujah. But now the husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. Well, how does Christ love the church? Everlastingly, perpetually, enduringly, nothing will separate me from loving you, the husband can say to his wife. Your wife should feel that. This won't end. You won't ever lose my love. You won't ever fall out of my love. Yes, there are two circumstances that are exceptions, two circumstances in the Bible where the husband's actually, or the wife's actually allowed to divorce. Those are exceptions. This is the rule. Nothing will separate you from his love. We see this again in Jeremiah 31.3, a nice short verse, but it makes a good point. God says to Israel, his people, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's how Christ loves the church, with an everlasting love. It lasts forever. It never ends. That's a model for how the husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. Baby, I will love you forever. In the ceremony, what are the words you say? Till death do us part. You say it, you mean it, and by the grace of God, you stick to her and you do that. You love her with an everlasting love. So this is a perpetual love. Christ loves his church with a perpetual love. Husbands are to love their wives with a perpetual and everlasting love, a love till death do us part. We need this in these days of easy divorce. You know what easy divorce is, right? It's divorce that's easy. It used to be hard. Let's talk about that for a minute. So Prior to 1970, divorce in America was hard. That's not that long ago. Some of you were born since then, I understand. Seems like a long time ago. Well, not that long ago in my life. Prior to 1970, divorce was hard. It was, of course, which state? You want to guess which state first changed to no-fault divorce? Which state was it? Yeah, it was California. The bellwether state. They start everything bad in the nation, right? So they started this, and in 1970, they, they voted into action. They, vote, they enacted no-fault divorce. What's no-fault mean? It means you no longer have to prove they have some major fault to be allowed to divorce them. It's no-fault. All you have to do is say, we're incompatible. We're not getting along. She burned my toast. I don't like her anymore. Whatever it is you want to say, and you can divorce her. Prior to that, it was really hard. You had to prove there was some major fault and the other person to be able to divorce them. It was fault divorce. Why? Why was it always in our nation prior to 1970 really, really difficult to divorce your spouse? Why did everybody think that was important until 1970? And it seems like nobody thinks it's important since 1970. Why was it important? What's the answer? Well, in part because we had more of a biblical foundation under our culture in those days, and we know the Bible says it's one man, one woman for life, till death do us part. But it's also this. Why is it important that husbands and wives stick together? Because in most cases they have children and it's for the children. Amen? It's for the kids. One of the main purposes for the family is to produce the next generation of humans upon the planet. 
That is one of the, it's not the only purpose, it's one of the main purposes. Some families in God's providence are not able to have children. They're not second-rate families. They're wonderful families. They're God-blessed. They can be fulfilled and have wonderful marriages, wonderful lives. I'm not talking about that right now. But most families are going to have children. And one of the main purposes of the family is to socialize those children so other people on the planet can stand them. It's true. It's just absolutely true. You've got to socialize them so they can get a job, and the boss won't say, oh, no, what have I hired? So they can get a wife or a husband, and the spouse won't say, oh, no, what have I married? No, you're supposed to teach them skills for life so they know how to treat other people. They know how to react to situations, et cetera. So they know how to control themselves. They know when and where and how to speak and so on. And children, to to be socialized, that is best accomplished in an intact family with a biological father and a biological mother. Now, hats off to, and God bless single mothers, amen? Like, how on earth they do it, I do not know. They're a special tribe. And hats off to those who, you know, it's a mixed family now. I was married to him, we had three kids, now I'm married to her, and she has four kids, and we're together, and we have another kid, and so God bless you all. But we all know, and there's lots of statistics on this, the best environment for raising healthy children is an intact family with biological parents. There's just no doubt about that whatsoever. And so prior to 1970, it seems like everybody understood that. And they said, we're going to make it very hard for you to divorce. Why? Why should I be unhappy? Because it's not just about you. It's also about the kids. It's about your children. And the world needs children who are raised in the best possible environment. So your love is to be an everlasting love. It's to be a perpetual love. It's to be till death do us part. Here's something interesting, by the way. About 50% of all marriages in the USA end in divorce. That figure is actually going down a little bit just now, but it's still roughly about 50, 50%. 60% of second marriages end in divorce. 73% of third marriages end in divorce. And here's a little thing that they don't tell you and you might be interested to know. 70% of all divorces are initiated by the wife. Where she has a college degree, it's higher. 90% of all divorces are initiated by the wife where the wife has a college degree. And especially if she's just gotten a big promo or a big raise, that's likely to be the time when the divorce happens. So that's interesting. I'll leave you to consider why might that be? One answer might be because men are dolts. So some of you might say, well, that's the answer, because men are impossible. Look a little harder for some other answers, all right? There are some other answers around. But here's the point. It's to be a perpetual love, men, till death do us part, say it, and mean it. Say, well, my marriage isn't good. I'm sympathetic. I hear you, and I can understand some situations seem about impossible. Like, how can that be fixed? It's just gotten so bad. I understand that. But the Bible says it's very important that as a culture, we back marriages sticking together for the sake of the kids and the next generation and humanity and for the gospel, for the sake of the gospel in the church. So it's all of that. Now, it's unconditional, it's intense, it's exclusive, it's perpetual, and now here's where I really want to go, and now we're really getting back into the meat of the text. It is also, a husband's love for his wife is also to be a sanctifying love. Paul makes this a really big point in the text. He doesn't even cover those other ones I just covered. He leaves us to figure them out. What would like Christ's love mean? 
But this is the one he brings out. This is the one he really cares about. This is the one the Spirit of God really wants to impress upon us. And he spills a good bit of ink impressing this upon us. He adds a whole lot of stuff about how Christ loved the church and sanctified it and sought to make it holy. Let's read the text again. Here we are, Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. He gave himself for her that he might sanctify her, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, launderer's terms, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Notice the three purpose clauses. Next slide. That he might sanctify her, that he might present her to himself in splendor, no spots or wrinkles, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, why all that verbiage? Why does Paul take prime time in God's word to tell us how Christ loved the church in this way, with a sanctifying love? Because he wants to impress upon us husbands, that's the primary thing you should be concerned with in the wife of your youth. That's the primary thing you want for her. You want for her what is best on the planet, what is most important on the planet. What is best and what is most important for her? It's that she would know Christ and love Christ and follow Christ and be a woman of God and be a holy woman, that she would do the will of God, embrace the will of God. You want her to be sanctified. You want to present your wife to yourself, a holy woman in splendor, no spiritual spots or wrinkles. They've been ironed out by the grace of God. So this is why Paul adds all of that verbiage. It's showing husbands, here's what I primarily have in mind for you as head, leading your wife and your family to spiritual health. Here's the primary thing you should be concerned about in the wife of your, your youth. Is, is she following Jesus Christ closely? And if not, you want to get busy and lead her to that. You want to get busy and influence her toward that. You want to get busy and pray for her about that. You're the head of the home. Head means authority. Head also means responsibility. It's your responsibility to see to her spiritual health. That's loving her like Christ loves the church. So this, what's this mean for, 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 for you and your wife? More than anything else. You want her to be growing in Christ more than anything else, more than you want her to drive a nice car, more than you want her to live in a nice house, more than you want her to have some new clothes. I hope all, all those things are fine. More than a nice vacation, a nice cruise, more than all those things, what you really want for her is, I want my woman to love the Lord Jesus with all her heart and soul and mind and strength. So how do you get her there? Well, there are these things called the means of grace. For a long time, the church has identified certain things and called them the means of grace. What are they? They're like, so imagine, well, you are in the room. Imagine, maybe you shouldn't imagine this. Imagine that all around the room, there are spigots, and beside each spigot, there's also a grill, and on the grill, there's some good steaks grilling. All right? 
You want to grow strong. You're hungry and you're thirsty. You want to grow strong. What do you do? You go to the spigot and you take a drink. You go to the grill and you get a steak. So you're nourishing your body so it can be strong. There are spigots and there are grills that God has put on the planet where you can take your wife and you and she drink and eat and you get stronger in the things of God. The church has long called these spigots and these grills the means of grace. Let me give you a definition. Here are two different definitions. I don't even know who this first one's from. I lifted it somewhere and they say, quote, the means of grace are God's appointed instruments by which the Holy Spirit enables believers to receive Christ and all the benefits of redemption. Here's a very standard definition of the means of grace. It's taken from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, quote, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation, Westminster Shorter Catechism. So what are the means of grace? Well, there are a number of them. Primarily, those two passages say, those two um, texts say, it, it just boils down to this. You want your wife to be a vital part of the life of a local church. You want to get her to church. You want her every week gathering with believers, lifting up her voice, singing the hymns of the faith, saying amens at the appropriate times, hearing the word of God read, hearing the word of God preached. You want her doing that. More than you want her having a job and making money, nothing wrong with that. More than you want her having new clothes, nothing wrong, new car, nothing wrong. I really want my wife in church on a regular, regular, regular basis where she is visiting God's spigot, visiting God's grill, feeding and drinking on the things of God where they come out most strong on the planet. I also want her involved in the private means of grace. I want her reading God's word. I want her praying. I'll just tell you, I've told you this before, Debbie and I have this little ritual. We didn't invent it, it just happened. So I'm downstairs at my desk early, about 6.50, I hear her get up, I can hear her feet upstairs. Oh, she's up. And about 7.15 or so, I go up to replenish my coffee mug. And when I do, I peek in and say hi to her. And we'll sit and talk for a few minutes. It's really nice. And, uh, but she's in there. I interrupt her, but with permission. She's in there reading her Bible and some devotional literature and having some time with God. Now, I know some of you have like five kids and four of them are in diapers. You're saying, I wish. All right, I get that. I understand. It might be catch as catch can for you. But, you know, our kids are grown and gone. We're empty nesters. And she can sit in there, and she's retired. She can sit in there and read the Word with leisure. Uh, I want that for her. If, if I saw that stop, if all of a sudden she's not doing that any longer, I'd be very concerned. What's going on with my wife? What's going on in her soul? We'd have to have some conversation about that. I want that for her more than I want anything for her, that she would be close to the Lord Jesus Christ. So loving Christ, loving your wife as Christ loves the church means you love her with a sanctifying love that, in order that, that she might be holy. So husbands, accept the responsibility, step up to the plate, start swinging the bat, this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Paul makes it very clear in the text. Get her to the spigots. 
Get her to the grill. Get her feeding her soul on the things of God. That's how Christ loved the church. Those are some characteristics of a husband's love for his wife. Now I'm going to leave Ephesians 5 and go to 1 Peter 3 again. We'll read the text again, but first let me put up one word. It's the word honor. We're going to just lift out of what Peter says. Here's another characteristic of a husband's love for his wife. It is that he honors her. Here's the verse. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. We've already talked about that one. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Showing honor. So, husbands, this is part of the job, part of what you're supposed to do in loving your wife, you're to show her honor. She should feel honored, highly valued, greatly respected, showing her honor. Let me show you some other passages in the Bible. I just poked around, looked at other passages that have the word honor in them and picked some of them, and they really they give us some insights for what this might look like. How does a husband show his wife honor? Here are some passages that really open that up for us. Romans 12, 10. I'll put each of these up. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. So when you honor somebody, you prefer them before yourself. You give them preference. So the husband who is head doesn't say, I'm head, you prefer me all the time because I'm head. No, no, no. The husband who is head is also going to honor his wife, and that means he's going to give her preference. So he's going to say, well, what would you like, baby girl? And she says, I want that. And he says, okay, we'll do it your way. Can there ever be exceptions? Well, certainly, because you're still a leader. And you might say, no, I don't think that one's so good. We talked about it, and somebody's got to, I'm going to make the call. We're not going to go that way. Debbie and I have this funny little thing we do, and I I debated, should I tell you about this or not? And I will, I'll tell you about it. She's wondering which one of the thousands of them could this possibly be. It's when we're driving. Every now and then, I don't know what it is, she gets this thing into her where I'm driving, she's the passenger, we're going somewhere, and she wants to tell me which way to go. I never let her do that. It's just my one little way of saying, wait a minute, I am still the head. Here's where I'm just going to insert that. Here's where I'm going to assert that. If she says, turn here, I'm, no, I'm going that way. It's just a funny little, have you noticed that? It's a funny little thing we do, all right? So, in, so you want to choose your hills to die on, and hopefully you don't die on it. You want to choose them very carefully. And anywhere you possibly can, prefer her. In honor, preferring one another giving preference to one another. Here's another text, 2 Peter 1.17. What does it mean to honor your wife? For he, Christ, received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the way the father talked about the son, the way the father described the son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, that is described to us as being the father honoring the son. So the way you talk about her, the way you describe her, the things you call her, your little affectionate nicknames for her, 
everything. The way you talk about her to other people is all to be honoring. If she got to listen in on the conversation you have with some other guy when you're out having coffee someday and you get to talking about your wives, which don't, all right? Just don't even go there. But you get to talking about your wives. And if she could listen in, she ought to feel like, wow, I was so honored in that. All he did was say, what a wonderful woman I am and how much he loves me and how thankful he is to marry me. And if he had it to do a thousand times again, he'd marry me and all thousand of them. That's honoring that woman. All right, here's another passage, Deuteronomy 26, 19. What does it mean for a husband to honor his wife? Here God is speaking about Israel that he, God, will set you high above all nations which he has made in praise, in name, and in honor, and that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. God will set you above all other nations in praise, in name, in honor. That's what you do with your wife. You love her exclusively. You set her above all other women. And in praise, and in name, and in honor, she's above. She ought to feel honored in that way. She ought to feel that from you. Here's another text, Leviticus 19.32. I kind of like this one for several reasons. One of them which has nothing to do with this sermon, but here it is. You shall rise before the gray-headed. I like that. It's good stuff. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man. Honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am the Lord. How do you honor the presence of an old man? You rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man. There are physical actions you can take. There are bodily postures you can have that show honor to another person. So I'm not interested in the gray-haired man here. What I'm interested in is you and your wife. And the principle applies. There are ways you can physically show her honor. It used to be part of our culture in America that when a woman enters the room, men would rise. Where did that come from? It came from here and other verses like this. Still not a bad idea. If anybody enters the room, male or female, rise and greet them. Show them honor. Show them respect. That's why you rise. But there are other ways you can do it in our day. Like husbands, I know this isn't just an application. God's word doesn't say this. I'm just making a suggestion to you here. But it is a suggestion of how you might show her honor. Open the car door. Did you feel that coming in? Is that what you, you knew that was coming? Just open the door for her. How come there wasn't a big amen in the room? All right, so I'm almost always without exception. Open the car. It's just a little way of saying... She could be all, like all feminist about it. I can open my own door. I don't need a man to open the door. I know, but I think she kind of likes it because it's a way I'm showing her honor. I so honor you. I'm going to walk around there, open the door, make sure you get okay, close the door. Then I'll walk around and get myself in. I see many of you husbands, especially on rainy days, you drop your wife off at the door and then you go park and you walk in in the rain. Why do you do that? Why don't you make her go park and walk in in the rain? Because you're honoring your wife. You're lifting her up. You're saying, you're in a special place. I take special care of you. You don't have to walk in rain. I'll take the rain. Why is it you uh, hold the umbrella for her, and the umbrella's not big enough for both of you, and the wind is blowing, and you have to tilt the umbrella, and you're keeping her dry, and you're getting wet? Why are you doing that? It's just a little thing. It's a little body, bodily thing. But it's like rising be- before the gray-headed man and showing him honor. You're showing your wife honor. By little bodily, physical things you could do all the time. 
When you're all into something, you're reading the book and you're all into it. And she says, uh, honey, can you help me with? You rise right up. You're right on that mission. You go right there. You help her with that. You drop whatever you're doing. What are you doing? You're showing her honor. I forget my book. I'm for you. I will honor you and help you with that thing. I love it when she brings me the pickle jar and she can't open it. You don't know this, but I'm, this isn't true. But I go around tightening all the lids. And she brings me a jar and says, can you open the lid? And now I'm the man. I get to open the lid, and I love that. But I'm honoring her by whatever I'm doing. I'll drop it. I'm going to open that lid for her gladly. I might get a kiss for opening the lid. Here's another way you honor her. This is from Esther 6, 6 through 9. Esther 6. So Haman came in, and I'm just, I can't give you all the background. It'll take too long. Just read along. And Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? The king wants to honor somebody. Haman thinks it's him, but it isn't. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? How do I honor someone? How do I show them honor? And Haman said to himself, well, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? It must be me. He's talking about me. And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Say, what applications can I make from that to how a husband honors his wife? Well, did you notice there were some robes, some really nice clothing being brought in there? Get Get her a nice dress. She says, can I get a new dress? Well, are there any discretionary funds? If no, sorry. But if yes, don't spend them on you, spend them on her. Amen, guys? If, if, if you're going to be a two-car family, you might be a no-car family, you might be a one, but if you're going to be a two-car family, which one of you gets the nicer car? Easy answer, right? She gets the nice car. I'll walk. She can drop me off from her, but she gets the nice car. You're honoring her with the royal robes and the horse, the nice car that the king has ridden. The robes and the horse and and. What about that last part? You take her out to the square of the city and proclaim, thus show up, be done to the man. Don't actually do that with your wife. But you get her the nice outfit, and you get her some new earrings, and you say, now I want to take you out somewhere really nice for dinner. Let's go out tonight. And she gets to sit there in that new dress and those nice earrings, and you're having a great time, and you're not fiddling with your phone. You turn it off and put it in your pocket. You're paying all your attention to her because you love her, and you want to honor her with this time. And she feels honored right? So there, there are a lot of ways you can, you can honor her. Here's some more. I want to just squeeze some more in. My time is almost gone. Psalm 91, 15. He shall call upon me. This is God speaking about you. You, he, he shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. When she's having trouble and she wants some help, you help her. You're honoring him. How about Proverbs 3, 9? Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So honor your wife with your possessions. And I already kind of said this, but where there are discretionary funds, don't spend it all on you. Yeah, there's money for me to buy all the toys I want for my man cave. Sorry, honey, there's no money left over for you. Maybe next month. No, if anybody gets some discretionary funds spent on them, how about her? And you don't get more toys for your man cave. 
Listen to Isaiah 29, 13. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts from me, dot, dot, dot. He's not pleased with them. So here's another way you honor, you honor her in your heart. This starts with your heart. This is about your heart. It's not just putting on externals and internally you're like, hmm, that woman. No, you're honoring her from the heart. So these are some of the ways that a husband honors his wife, and in so doing, he is loving his wife like Christ loves the church. Some of you guys are single, and you're thinking, if this is the way it is, why should any man marry? Yeah, the disciples said that to Jesus once. It's actually wonderful to marry and have the opportunity to honor your woman in a way and love her in a way that is exclusive. So what have we seen? Let me put up a review. Here we're going to summarize. I think I have a slide for this. For the husband... Your identity is given to you by God. You're the head. What are your tasks? Lead the family to health and lead your family in the mission. What are the commands given to you? You are to love her, give yourself for her, sanctify her, not be harsh with her, dwell with her according to understanding, and honor her. That's what we've seen to the husband. To the wife, what's your possession? Your identity is you are a help. Not help in little insignificant ways. Help doesn't mean please pass me the wrench. Well, it might mean that. But what it really means is God has given you two a mission He's the head, the leader in the mission. You're the help in that important mission. The two of you get busy on that mission. That's what that is. It's not a little insignificant job. It's the same task you're on, she's on. You're workers together in that by the grace of God. So your tasks are help him to lead it to help, health, help him with the mission. And your commands are be submissive, respect him, and let your adorning be inward, 1 Peter 3, and love him, Titus. Uh, the older women teach the younger women to love their husbands. So wives and husbands, what we've seen here is the will of God. Now, I want to tell you in closing, I feel like we should just take another three months and preach and hear and think about being a husband and being a wife in marriage because it's hard, isn't it? One sinner being married to another for life. So one of the things, I haven't done any premarital counseling in a long time. Pastor Stan is our premier premarital counseling. He is amazing at it. Go to him. But one of the things I like to do in premarital counseling is they come in for counseling. And uh, by the way, my theory is premarital counseling isn't worth much because everything you say to them, they're just like, yeah, we'll have a wonderful marriage. It's all going to be perfect. They're all starry-eyed and they don't get it. It's better to have six months after postmarital counseling, right? Now we have some things to talk about. One of the things I tell them in premarital counseling is I'll say, I'll take a three by five. Let's pretend this is the three by five, last page of my notes. And I'll say, um, right, there's your husband and those are his problems. And right now they're that far away from you and they don't really bother you that much. But when you get married, they come right up here and they stay right there. I mean, all day, every day, they never go away. The problems stay right, and now you're living with those problems. And I guarantee you, after six months of those problems being right there in your face, you're gonna notice some things. You're gonna think, hmm, my marriage has some problems, and I'm thinking it's him. <laughs> and, and, and she's thinking, and you're thinking, my marriage has some problems, I think it's her. And everybody wants to point the finger, it's probably both of you. So I feel like we ought to spend more time on this, but we're gonna leave this to you and the Spirit of God working in your heart. Does your marriage line up? Are you leading it to line up with the will of God? Now is the time. We've been in one of the Bible's premier passages. If not now, when? May the Lord in his grace help the husbands and wives of Cornerstone Church to make it beautiful 
joyful blessing to everybody. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this time, these weeks, in this, these portions of your word. We pray for the marriages, the husbands, and the wives of Cornerstone Church, and pray that the Spirit of God would hover over them, that you, by your word and your spirit, you would work in them mightily. Would you fashion each husband and each wife to be conformed to the image of Christ? And would you help us to live out and fulfill these roles that you have given us to your glory, to everybody's good, to the blessing of the church and the world, for the good of our children, should you bless us with them. And so, Father, we lift up the marriages of this church before you and ask that you would have your will and have your way in them. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.